Hello and welcome to Over the Air Christian Podcast. It's been a very long time since I produced an update. Work became very busy for me during the flu season, third and fourth wave of COVID with vaccination and testing. That was incredibly stressful. It takes a toll on my body and my focus on the Word of God. Engagement with local church at the same time was a significant blessing. So my podcast took a backseat in the past couple of months. Finding time for recording wasn't easy. It takes me a month now to do a day's work in the gospel compared to when I was a pastor full-time. This episode is titled uh, Democratic Freedom and Moral Homelessness. I will start with a brief survey on democracy from a biblical point of view, both from historical accounts and didactic teaching. Democracy is possibly the most prized narrative and the most preferable type of government all over the world in the 21st century. It's found in many countries in the West. Democracy reveals societal lacking in moral anchor, morally homeless, as I would say it, not knowing where to belong. I will eventually compare this to Exodus chapter 32 with our current times. What I mean is, Democracy isn't a problem, but democracy reveals a problem in us which democracy itself cannot fix. As such, democracy isn't necessarily preferable over authoritarian rule. They both have their pros and cons. You will find in my conclusion that democracy and authoritarian rule are both empty shells. Whichever method allows good government is best. Good would be defined by the Bible's teaching rather than public opinion of the voting masses. Which would mean democracy has no absolute advantage over anything else. Only obedience to scripture matters. I'll compare democracy only with authoritarian rule, only to highlight extremity and for simplicity's sake. And I will not discuss totalitarian or socialist regimes. To put my view in short, method of government between democracy or authoritarian rule is a numbers game, relative either to prevent errors or to advance society. It's my presumption that to govern, justice must be guaranteed. And the contemporary expression for which justice in our 21st century consciousness would emphasize human rights, freedom, world peace. That's the goal of a government that we are currently accustomed to against which comes the antagonist expressions of racial bias, prejudice, terrorism, and so on. Fresh in an eventual post-pandemic world, human rights narrative might change in light of vaccination mandate and health regulation. But in terms of investing power into a type of government, it's a numbers game between democracy, which favors any number of incompatible views represented by a collective of different political parties, that's democracy. Or a single authoritarian ruling figure, like one person at the top. Whichever is more effective at delivering justice as previously defined, that's the viable option of government. Now, I'll put it like this. It's far easier to make one person virtuous and good, to make one person faithful, uphold peace and human rights, Have him, one person, alone rule. That's easier than it is to unite countless opposing parties and viewpoints and voters in some sort of agreement that way. But if the power to rule is invested in but one person, 
And if that one person becomes corrupted, well, then everyone else would be in trouble. For instance, think of King David or Solomon from the Bible. One person, they individually led people faithfully into prosperous good times. Or Adolf Hitler and Karl Marx, who led everyone into trouble, under whom too many precious lives died needlessly and without justice. Singular authoritarian rule. And in the same way, it is much, much easier to antagonize one person who rules wrongly than it is to point out the faults in a collective of viewpoints of the population and tell the majority that everyone is wrong. That's how we get prophetic books in the Old Testament, which constantly denunciate individual ruling kings and priests in the Bible. The opposite would be democracy. It is far more difficult to corrupt an entire collective or socially defined groups in a democratic system. But when the collective agree on something, whether it is good or bad, there is little to no chance for any change at all to change course. Even if the majority were wrong, and there is absolutely no guarantee that democratic decision is a good one, whether a democratic ruling is good or bad, the whole people will be responsible. It is far more difficult to prove to a collective of a very big group that something is wrong, as opposed to proving that to an individual. Think abortion laws, substance and drug use, definition of, of marriage and personhood, etc. Think Brexit, when majority of UK voted in a democratic system to exit the European Union in 2020. Most legalizing bills and legislations in the West are passed through democratic decisions at different levels of government. Another example of democracy in power had Jesus nailed on a cross. The indifferent governor, Pontius Pilate, caved in under public pressure of the mob, the crowds, and the religious sect leaders, causing the death of an innocent. Other examples of democratic ruling include men and women who are wrongfully imprisoned by juries and judges in today's court of law, these are examples of democracy's failure. Embedded in human rights is the narrative of democratic freedom. If everyone can agree on it, as long as it's peaceful, without disrupting or hurting anyone else, then it is widely considered as acceptable. But acceptable does not equate good. Majority may find same-sex relationship acceptable, but that's not exactly good for the survival of a species or a sustainable population for a country, for instance, which leads to issues of commerce and industry and so on. And so the method of government between authoritarian rule and democracy is a numbers game aimed at either preventing errors or advancing social agendas to prevent things from going bad or taking initiative to make things better. Call it republic or conservative philosophies, if you will. This podcast is about obedience to scripture, not political views. In the Bible, there are both examples of authoritarian rule and examples of collective democratic rule. And in both cases, they could be good or bad from both camps. Figures of singular authoritarian rule includes patriarch, judges, kings, primarily in the Old Testament. These were the ages ruled by one individual figure at the top. There was Abraham, the forefather of Israel. He had dealt with king of Philistine and Bimelech before. There was Pharaoh of Egypt, under whom was Joseph, who also ruled. Then came others like Saul, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, Jeroboam, Jehoshaphat, Rehoboam, just to name a few among prominent figures. These are all singular authoritarian ruling figures. I mentioned 
David and Solomon earlier who rule for the people's well-being and led them into good and prosperous times. That's a win on the scorecard for authoritarian rule. On the contrary, there is Rehoboam in 1 Kings chapter 12. He inherited the crown to rule, but foolishly ignored wise counsel, and his citizens suffered a much worse livelihood than before. Even when Israel was split into two kingdoms, they each had their respective kings who ruled from the top. Old Testament was largely dominated by singular authoritarian rule. But once we move into the New Testament, once Jesus was nailed on the cross by popular and democratic demand, once the collective voices of the crowd and the religious sects had the power to motion the death sentence of Jesus into reality, there began a shift in the tone in the types of government depicted in the Bible. After the Gospels and from the New Testament onward, there were councils upon councils that were mentioned in the book of Acts. Responsibility of ruling became a plural responsibility. The original 12 disciples had their run of leadership. Together in the opening chapters in the book of Acts, together they led many believers added to the church on a daily basis. They, in plural, organized ministries to meet many needs. Not one ruled over another. The twelve had unity and agreement, even down to the way Judas was replaced. You could say it was democratic, just not by vote, but casting lot instead, at the end of Acts chapter 1. When the apostles were arrested in chapter 4, they were brought before a council of religious sects again, rather than a single ruling figure. Acts chapter 11, after Peter experienced miraculous vision and baptized Gentiles, he reported to the church council. Acts chapter 15, when debate flared up about salvation and requirements of the Mosaic law, Peter gave the final theological reassurance, but it was presented to the church council in Jerusalem. Council, plural in ruling responsibility. Further in the New Testament records, the Apostle Paul wrote vigorously and painstakingly, even repeatedly, to give very detailed instruction on how elders, in plural, are to rule the church together, not as a single individual. This can be found all across Paul's prison epistles and more, so that everyone elected and put in power may rule together by the Spirit of God to uphold the teaching and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. The only notable individual that was singled out individually to have received from Paul's instruction would have been Timothy, his protege and disciple in the labor of the gospel, and he was not much in any way instructed to rule or govern at all. There is a very notable shift in the form of government presented in the Bible across Old and New Testament. The kind of singular authoritarian rule figure we saw in Old Testament no longer had any emphasis in the New Testament where democracy became more visible. This is the pattern I've identified just by briefly surveying scripture. This is not to say one was the norm over the other. Who then should rule? To rule and to govern is a task that should only be done with the Spirit of God. Think uh, Numbers chapter 11 in the Old Testament. Verse 16, God gave Moses a command and the Lord said to Moses, Gather 70 elders from Israel, and I'll take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they, the 70, who may now also have the spirit of God, may bear the burden of the people along with Moses. 
so that Moses will not bear the burden to rule by himself alone. See, Moses was able to rule and lead because God had given him the Holy Spirit to do so. And when more leaders were added due to Moses not able to bear the burden physically, so God gave the others, the 70, his spirit also, so that others could also lead. The 70 was 70 in numbers. They got to lead only because of the Holy Spirit. But there was always only one Moses, and no one else led like he did, even as God gives the others his Holy Spirit also. Now think in terms of numbers again. One man leads, one man with the Spirit of God, Moses. Then the Spirit of God was given to 70 as well. Nothing more, nothing less. 70 exactly. Then the 70 were able to lead and govern as well, along with Moses. When we move into the New Testament, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God was poured out, available to all flesh, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, children, all in Christ and in Christ alone may have the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is available to all people because of Jesus, instead of just one or few groups of selected individuals, that is a tremendous, tremendous development. God's grace on all of mankind to be sure. Long time ago, it was just one and then 70. But when we move into the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is available to all. That's a huge development. Big change. Since the capacity to rule is tied to the Holy Spirit, and once the Spirit was only reserved for a select few in the Old Testament and then became available to all in Christ, then we can start talking about democracy. When we talk about Holy Spirit, available to all flesh. Whence from the Old Testament, the outpouring of the Spirit of God was once reserved for the likes of kings, prophets, judges, and priests, uniquely raised and identified individuals in the New Testament due to the work of Christ and his promise to send the Holy Spirit spoken from John 14. The Spirit of God is now available to all flesh only due to Jesus and because of Jesus alone because of what he has promised and because of what he has done on the cross. So it is no wonder that the responsibility to rule shifted from a specific singular individuals to collective democratic expressions throughout the entire Bible, from Old Testament to New. In other words, it's no wonder that singular authoritarian rule is out on the way, making way for democratic expressions, even from a biblical point of view. In other words, what matters most isn't whether we have democracy or authoritarian rule. It is not whether authoritarian is superior or democracy is inferior between one another. Rather, what's most important is, do we have the Spirit of God? The greatest government in a society is not measured by how it's set up. Whether it's democratic or authoritarian rule, each method has its own wisdom and folly, success and failures. Government can change. Structure and method can change. What matters most is in the abiding of the Holy Spirit and obedience to Christ through his teaching in Scripture, in the Bible, his way of life. Obedience to his way of life, his outlook and attitude to all people and things in line with the law of God, beginning straight from the Ten Commandments. That is what matters most in any type of government. 
If one man were to rule, he must abide by the Holy Spirit and have others support him to do so, prayerfully and with wise counsel. If many were to rule in a democratic fashion, then everyone, and I mean everyone, must abide by the Holy Spirit in obedience to Scripture with the love of Jesus. Hence, back to my point earlier, it's a numbers game. Whichever is easier to install a good man versus many good parties weighed against the measure of spiritual obedience or sin and evil, that's the preferable method. So if there were any battle to preserve or spread wide the ideology of democracy, at heart is a conquest to provoke love for Jesus and a sensitive reception of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said, if you love him, naturally you will obey. That obedience will come very easily if the love is there. And then Jesus will ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit. Take him from John 14. That's where we begin as a new mission of the church, to present Jesus Christ as the most worthy of our love above anything and everything. Anything and everything materialistic or ideological. That's the new mission of the church. Jesus is worth our love more. Jesus is the most worthy of our love above everything else we try to legalize with our democratic freedom. Yes, Jesus is worth more. Love for Jesus is the means to obedience, and obedience leads to reception of the Holy Spirit. And when everyone comes under the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit from God, that's where unity can happen. Once under the same Christ and in one Holy Spirit. Unanimously democratic if necessary. In today's world, democracy operates in such a way where a man is voted into power by the most widely adopted opinion held by the public masses. In other words, in order to be voted into power under the democratic system, all you have to do is to side with the majority and give them what they want. No matter exactly what is it that they want, morality is practically non-issue in the face of majority. But people don't always want the same things, and people don't always want things that is good for themselves, as strange as that may sound like children. Sometimes children don't want things that are good for themselves. Or sometimes children want things that are not good for themselves. And in the same way, we need our Heavenly Father. So therein lies the complicated problem. What if democratic majority side for something that is terrible? Well, to add, literally speaking, since majority always wins in democracy, even if the decision were a bad one. So again, it's a numbers game, a dangerous one. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, in a very poetic way, Jesus said, The gate is wide, and the way to destruction is easy. Many people enter it. Many people take actions and go through the gate that is wide, leading to destruction. Many people live their lives towards destruction. And the narrow gate that leads to life is narrow, and those who find it are few. That's Matthew chapter 7. Pay attention. The Bible says, Few will find the narrow gate to life. Just finding the narrow gate leading to life, just finding it are few in number. The ones who may actually enter through what they find could be fewer still. Those are the few who perhaps should govern. 
how are we to think of destruction or a destructive way of life into which many enter? Take this from Romans chapter 1. They are filled with all manners of unrighteousness, malicious evil, coveting, or like a jealous wanting, wanting enough to steal or to rob someone, malice like an intention to hurt someone. They are full of envy, ready to murder, lie, cheat, commit fraud. They are full of gossips and slanders that debase others with words openly or secretly. They invent evil things that leads to destruction, destroying things. They destroy others and in so doing destroy themselves in the process. Their families are in shambles. They are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. These are the things that lead to destruction. They destroy their own humanity. Bottom line, according to Romans chapter 1 in the Bible, they are haters of God. They hate God instead of loving Him. No wonder there is no obedience or Holy Spirit. Those who cheat, lie, steal, murder will only put what power given to them to do the same to others and allow others to do the same. Let me say that one more time. Those who cheat, lie, steal, murder, destroy will only put what power given to them to do the same to others. If they were given power to rule, they will only put what power given to them to do the same to others and allow others to do the same. It is no wonder people such as this should not be fit to rule, whether by democratic rule or authoritarian rule. Romans 132 Though they know God's righteous law or decree, as in according to God's perfect justice and verdict, those who do these things deserve to die. Not only they do these things themselves, but give approval to those who practice it. We're talking about destruction. Not only they do these things themselves, but give approval to those who practice it. They, plural, they give approval to those who do the same thing. Approval, that's a legal term, like a governor's approval rating given by the masses. Approval, they approve to those who practice it because they do the same things themselves. They sin and destroy and they give approval for others to also sin and destroy. Wide is the gate and many enter, says the Bible. The purpose of democracy and freedom is not to legalize any law just as we see fit so our flesh desire it whenever we want, whatever we please. That's not the purpose of democracy or freedom. Unfortunately, that's exactly the appeal that by a person's vote, everyone has an equal share of power to rule according to their own heart's desire. That is what democracy reveals in a collective moral bankruptcy together as a society. Morally homeless. We are at such a heightened state of alert to promote, spread wide the ideals of democracy. There's constant talk to preserve democracy or democratic freedom is being threatened all over the world. And there could be a wide range of historical factors that contribute to this immediate heightened sympathy towards democracy. General mistrust towards organized institutions, government or religious bias and justice regarding law enforcement, an overtone of cultural expressionism that craves for acceptance and approval via political venue like personal orientation and identity. When it comes to democracy, think human rights, abortion rights, sexual orientation rights, 
divorce rights, drug use rights, personal health choice rights. In part, it is also a reaction and response to authoritarian oppression, war and slavery. There are many factors and narratives that give democracy a foothold. From our postmodern mindset and sensitivity, wishing heroically to put an end to slavery, we think we want freedom for everyone. And that was precisely the narrative of Exodus for the Israelites. They were a people alleviated from oppression, torture and slavery finally freed from authoritarian tyranny of the Pharaoh of Egypt. But they were freed through the wilderness into a place without a home, homeless for a while. This is a very strong comparison to the state of morality in all the democratic countries in the 21st century. Free, but without a home, morally speaking. Hence, without anchor, morally homeless. Exodus 32 was the precise moment where lawless democracy sprang up between slavery and home. And Israel isn't the only nation in all of history where this spiritual spectacle can be observed. So in a few broad strokes, that's my outline for democracy and authoritarian rule. Please stay tuned for part two, where I discuss how I mean by morally homeless and finding a way forward through the Bible. (music) 